Well, Christ is risen, hallelujah. Very happy to be here with you this morning. Dr. Cloa is out of town somewhere. If he told me, I don't remember what he said he, he had to do, but I'm Jeff Oshwald, one of his colleagues at the seminary. Uh, we have three New Testament Jeffs, uh, so if you're ever uncertain of how to address a New Testament professor, just call him Jeff, and you're most likely right. Um, I've been at the seminary since 2002, and uh, my wife, Jill, who's uh, up in the corner here in the pink sweater, and I, with our family, came here from Taiwan, where I had been teaching at a seminary there for about nine years before coming here. Uh, so, uh, very happy to be here with you. And let's begin with a prayer. Uh, it's a prayer uh, from Eric Milner White, and it's simply called The Bible. It's it's one I often turn to when I'm beginning a new chapter of Bible study. So we pray, Grant us, O Lord, to take the book of books as delivered by angels with expectancy of faith, with brimming hope, and with the love that kindles knowledge, to open and reopen, to read and reread, ponder and ponder again your word of life. Convey to us, O Holy Spirit, through the familiar phrases, fresh understanding, through passages passed over or unapprehended, new treasure, and through your grace, give us insight, conviction, guidance, revelation, and glory. Show us, O Holy Spirit of light, by the holy book, all that has fellowship with light, Reveal truth, you who are truth. Illuminate divine mysteries. Make plain our duties in the eternal order, humbling and uplifting our minds, waking purpose in our wills and energy in our deeds, breathing devotion into the heart, exaltation and oblation into the soul, that we may live and move and rest in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are God alone. You are love you are life, you are spirit, you a consuming fire from everlasting, world without end. Amen. Uh, just in case I missed you as you walked in, there is a handout I'm using this morning instead of a, a projection. So if anyone needs a copy, uh, I can grab one over here. Does everyone have one with insight? Okay. Now, Dr. Cloa had asked me to uh, introduce the book of Acts to you, but it sounds like you began a little bit of that last Sunday, and I thought uh, just to avoid needless repetition, uh, I would ask you what you covered last Sunday. Uh, see if anybody remembers. And if you don't, that's fine. I'll just do what I have, yeah. Um, we talked about the fact that this is the second volume of Luke's, and we went back to the beginning of Luke, and we spent a little bit of time talking about this uh, word narrative. Okay. That it appears in some. I was gonna, actually going to follow up today and ask if the word at the beginning of Acts, um, 
the first book, if that also meant narrative. Um, because we were talking about the fact that it's changing from oral history to written. Yeah. And that he, he had the phrase on the board, somebody else may remember better than me, but like certainty in the midst of not uncertainty, but, but that was the task of member done. <laughs> just yeah, that it was yeah. The task at hand was to show credibility when you weren't an eyewitness. Okay. Yeah. Good. <laughs> okay. Well, that will fit well then with what I had planned, and we'll ask some of the basic questions and come back to uh, some of those more literary questions as well. Uh, I uh, thought I would begin just uh, trying to get the wheels turning, uh, bring up some of those uh, old Sunday school memories if you haven't read through Acts in a while and see what you recall, probably more than you think you would. Uh, but. Uh, Acts is full of information, and uh, as I noted there on the handout, uh, Linsky in his commentary tells us that 110 people are mentioned by name in the book of Acts. That's a lot of names. Uh, and I was just going to ask if you could match up a few of these names with the descriptions of them uh, from Acts. Uh, so we have Barnabas, Felix, Lydia, Stephen, Dorcas, and Bernice. And let's start. Okay, Dorcas, also Tabitha. I almost put that in the description, but I thought that would make it too easy. It's Tabitha. Okay, so we know Dorcas. Well, apparently we've uh, hooked up again with uh, St. Paul Church in DePere for the Bible study. Let's join them right now to that question just briefly. Um, and to do that, let's go from the very beginning of Acts to the very end. Go to Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. And can I ask one of you to read those verses out loud for us? Please. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him, boldly and without hindrance, to preach the kingdom of God and talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, so, again, uh, who is the he we're talking about here? Paul. And where is he? In Rome. Now, there are a lot of interesting things about these two verses, but you won't get to them for several weeks, uh, maybe years, if I understand this Bible study correctly. Uh, but why is he living there at his own expense? Isn't he, isn't he under arrest? 
They had to take care of their own needs when they were under arrest. Uh, uh, getting arrested didn't guarantee you a warm bed and three meals a day, uh, like in the O. Henry stories. Uh, so uh, Paul was there, uh, probably using both his own money and getting support from the Christians in Rome to maintain him during these years. Uh, if you want a quick picture of what he looked like, uh, one of my books says he was probably in a third floor apartment. Uh, how on earth did, was, did someone come up with that? Why a third story apartment? Mine says it was own rented house. Okay. Uh, probably not a freestanding house uh, with a nice yard and a white fence, but why would someone say third, third floor? Be less expensive, but most buildings, uh, and if you've traveled anywhere outside the United States, you're probably familiar with this, a lot of buildings, the first floor is what? A business, a store. And the second floor is where the owner of the business lives. So the first one available for rent would be the third floor. So uh, yeah, that's why he says that, but Paul clearly is looking for some kind of affordable house. He has to stay in the, the area so that he can be ready to answer the summons. Uh, he is probably actually chained to a Roman soldier uh, because they didn't put you in secure cells. They just tied you to a man. Uh, and uh, you can just imagine what it would be like to live for two years chained to someone else especially when you didn't have any indoor plumbing. Right? Can you imagine trying to convince your guard to get up and come with you every time you needed to find a bathroom? Um, but more importantly, uh, where does the story end for Luke and Paul? Paul's in Rome and he's preaching. Now, some have said this tells us at what point Luke wrote his story, and I think that's the question Dr. Cloa raised for you last time. Uh, and how did you answer it? Do we know that when Luke wrote Acts, Paul was still living? It would seem so unless you could give a good reason why Luke might not tell the story of Paul's execution, even if he already knew it. And can you think of a reason why he wouldn't include it? Not the most encouraging thing in the world. <laughs> it's not a happy way to end the story, right? <coughs> and they chopped his head off the end. Um, okay, so that's one reason. There's kind of a, an emotional or psychological reason why you might not want to leave your readers there. It off also seems like we're ending on a note of defeat rather than victory. But the reason I wanted to raise this is, again is it takes us right into the purpose of Luke writing this book. Whose story is Luke telling in the book of Acts? That's the question I want to get to now. Um, we'll come back to date uh, after we answer this. Uh, in the case of Acts, Almost all of these introductory questions are intertwined with each other 
and it's hard to ask, answer one without answering another. Uh, I listed on the handout there several possible suggestions. These are things uh, different authors have, have given as the purpose for Luke writing a second book. Um, let me, uh, this is such a good quote, I want to take just a few minutes and read this for you. This is from Martin Franzman's introduction, uh, which uh, was mentioned just a few minutes ago. It's called, The Word of the Lord Grows. Uh, it may be, Franzman writes, as some scholars have supposed, that Acts has an apologetic purpose to make plain to the Roman world that Christianity is no treasonable, subversive movement, but it is, but is innocent of politically dangerous intent. Its preachers may be turning the world upside down, but not in any sense that threatens the stability of the empire. It has often been pointed out that Luke repeatedly notes the fact that Roman officials find Christianity politically innocuous. Remember, even back in the Gospel, Luke makes a real point that Rome finds Jesus what? Innocent. They find him guilty of nothing that should lead to his execution. The same is true in Acts. But that purpose, he says, is at most a secondary one. The prime intent of the work is religious. It portrays the impact of the risen and exalted Christ upon the wide world. The Christ confronts men in the inspired word of the messengers whom he himself has chosen. He confronts all sorts and conditions of men, Jews, Samaritans, Greeks, Romans, the high and the lowly, the king and the cripple, suave metropolitan philosophers, and superstitious, excitable louts of the hinterland. And he confronts them all with the gracious claim of his saving lordship. Whether the response be the joyous and absolute submission of faith, or the embittered resistance of unbelief, or the polite mockery of skepticism, he looms divinely large as the Lord before whom the ways of men divide, as the Christ who is gathering the new people of God from among all the nations of the earth. The book does not pretend to be a history of the first church or even a history of early missions. It would be woefully incomplete as either of the two. It is the continuation of the story of the Christ and can therefore be as selective in recording the facts of history as the gospel itself. And then he talks of uh, all the ways Luke could have tracked this story. He decides to trace it to Rome. Um, and when it reaches Rome, uh, Luke has then fulfilled his purpose for this particular narrative, which is to show how the gospel has moved from Jerusalem, where these central events of salvation took place, out into the wide world and what has been able to stop it? Nothing. And when you end in chapter 28, uh, you have this very ironic situation. The great apostle, the great preacher of the gospel is in what situation? He's a prisoner. He's under arrest. He's under Rome's control. But what's he doing while he's a prisoner? Preaching, and Luke says he's preaching how? Without hindrance. So those chains on his wrists don't stop him from preaching. Um, and so this word has triumphed. Um, 
I think the only way to justify us as God's people spending time on this book in what's supposed to be our Bible study hour is if Franzman is right. If this is a book about Jesus Christ, then we should be studying it together. Uh, if it's a book on the history of missions, then maybe the seminaries can use it, or the Office of International Mission can print it and give it out to missionaries. If it's a history of the church, well, we'll turn it over to the historians. Uh, but it's not. This is scripture. This is one of those scriptures that testifies to Jesus Christ and his lordship um, and that's why it's in our New Testament, and that's why we're reading it here together. Um, that's why I don't think we can conclude from the end of Acts uh, that Luke had to have written this book before Paul was executed. Because he's not trying to give us a life of Paul. He doesn't take us from Paul's birth, through his education, his early training, uh, into his career, tell us everywhere he went, and then this is how he died. And then this is his legacy. That's not what Luke is writing here. Um, uh, so he's writing a book uh, that, well, that's the last question for this morning. How would you describe this book? What is it? Uh, it's not really a gospel, is it? Uh, doesn't read the same way the Gospels about Jesus read. Uh, it's not quite history either, even though there's a lot of history in it. Um, we said it's not a study of a particular theological question like mission, uh, although there's a lot you can learn from this book about mission. Um, how would you describe it if say, you have a coworker, a neighbor, who's just starting to work through the New Testament and uh, scanning down the table of contents there, they see Acts of the Apostles. What's that? How would you describe it to them? How about Odyssey? Sorry? Odyssey. Odyssey. Odyssey of the Word of God. Okay. It's a very good way to describe it. Now, why did you cho uh, choose the word Odyssey? Okay, so if not everyone here is familiar with the Odyssey, um, what's that book about? Well, it's, it's, it's a travel adventure. Okay, a travel adventure. Um, I think we could hardly do better than that. It's a travel adventure of the Word of God. Um, uh, when you get to the question of genre, uh, what type of book it is, what literary category would you put it in. There are a couple different ways to answer it, and all of them, I think, well, the best ones are helpful, uh, but may not tell you the whole story. Uh, it's not quite like writing straight history. Um, and a lot of people get very frustrated with this book. In fact, these are the kinds of questions we usually get as, as New Testament teachers. Um, what else can you tell me about Barnabas? Well, nothing other than the verses you already know. I have the same information you do. Um, well, why did they do this? What happened afterwards? Well, that's not in the book. 
and so we may have some theories, but we don't know. Uh, so for a historian, this is a frustrating thing to read. Um, one suggestion that I like, it's a word we don't use often in uh, biblical studies, um, but one um, person who spent a lot of time on this question suggests we think of it as a report. Now a lot of us have to write reports and uh, we may hate writing reports and we may hate even more when we have to read reports uh, but when you're writing a report what are you trying to do? What's your goal? Tell what happened but we have to add not everything that happened, right? How do you decide what to put in your report and what not to? You're reporting about something or some topic. Right. So you try to keep it on that subject. So before you even sit down to write it, you've got the subject narrowed down for you. You have a purpose in writing it. Perhaps someone has asked you for it. Uh, and so it's not everything that happened, but everything that happened that helps me understand my question. And if we think of Theophilus as the one asking for this report, uh, he's interested, remember, in coming to a certain and sure knowledge about Jesus Christ, the things he's already been told. Uh, so Luke is filling in that picture. Uh, this book is written to help you know about Jesus. Um, uh, so you choose your words carefully. Uh, you don't have unlimited space. Uh, people want to get to the important things right away in a report. Uh, what else do we value in reports other than conciseness? Conclusion. Conclusion. Uh, where does it bring us? Where does it leave us? Uh, how does it help us decide certain questions? Um, what else do you want a report to be? Convincing. Convincing. And factual. Okay, factual, accurate. You want it careful. You want it well-researched and the sort of thing that can be uh, supported by other witnesses. Uh, so you see all of those values coming into this book. And that's why I think uh, even though report sounds a little maybe dull. Uh, it's not a bad way to think of what Luke is doing here. He's giving us a report. What you don't want is commentary. If you're doing a report, you really don't want commentary. You want to keep it out. Right. Because okay. so this is a book to me acts as a very surprising book. Action book, but I mean it's got a little history, it's got biography, but you almost could call it Revelation except that name was taken. <laughs> okay. Right. You, um, to whom is important? Uh, now, why do you ask a particular person to write the report for you? You trust his perspective. You think he should know what he's talking about. Uh, maybe he was a witness for the things he's describing. Um, so, I want to be careful we don't say no commentary whatsoever, right? We want a writer who can tie things together for us. We don't want to just read what he thinks. We want to know the evidence. Uh, 
What's the material? Uh, we trust his opinion, but we want to know how he came to that opinion. Uh, and you can imagine Theophilus saying, Luke, you know, I know you're a Christian. I know you've looked into all these things very carefully. Um, what brought such conviction to you? Uh, what did you experience that made you such a believer in this Lord Jesus Christ? Can you share that with me? At just one point, who is the author? It's God who's the author. He gave the writers, so that's why it's there. Right, so ultimately, um, we would say the author, uh, from a whole perspective, is the Spirit of God, uh, who is uh, guiding Luke in his writing of this, uh, so that we can say this, too, is not just history, not just appendix, this is God's Word. I was going to open by asking, does anyone have a confirmation verse from the book of Acts? I would have been surprised if you'd said yes. <laughs> That's a little disappointing that no one says yes. I mean, this book has good Bible verses in it too. Right? Um, and uh, we often forget that there are some very beautiful passages here. Um, just about out of time. Uh, let me add one last point to this and then we'll see what we need to tie together, what questions we still have. One of the most interesting suggestions I've come across on uh, what kind of book this is, is to say we could possibly regard it as a biography, but if we're going to think of it as a biography, we have to be careful about which main character we choose. And if you were to say the main character in the book of Acts was, how would you fill in the blank? I would say the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Jesus. Although neither of those are mentioned as consistently as we might think if this is really a book about them. Uh, now, someone has written recently a biography of God, which is sort of strange, right? If a biography is a story of somebody's life, then how do you tell the story of God's life when he's eternal? Um, and so, biography and Holy Spirit might be hard to put together. Uh, biography and Jesus, well, that's sort of what, act, or sort of what Luke was, right? The suggestion someone made, and this goes back to your, your uh, response, was that the main character of this book is actually the Word. And when people study these questions, they'll go through a whole book and they'll look at every sentence and they'll ask, who is the subject of the sentence? Who is the one doing something or saying something in this sentence? And when it's a biography, you would expect a certain percentage of those sentences to have the main character as the subject. Well, if you do that for the book of Acts, it's the word of God that comes out to write about the percentage you would expect of being the subject of sentences that the word of God did this, uh, the word was among them, uh, and uh, you'll see as you begin your study of this book that Acts is full of speeches. Uh, it's several times more of the length of this book devoted to speeches 
than any other ancient book we have. So it's a, it's a book about a message. And the message is, in fact, the main character in this book, the one who is driving things forward. And, of course, when we say the Word is the main character, that's Jesus, too. It's Jesus now uh, as Word of God, and Word of God speaking through human agents, through men he's chosen to carry his message forward. Okay, on the back, uh, I gave you a very simple outline, or on the bottom there, a very simple outline. Um, I gave it to you because Dr. Cloa suggested I should. Um, but I don't like to look at outlines until I've read the book myself. Uh, because if you look at the outline, you'll read the book in a way that you make it fit the outline. Uh, and I'd rather you looked at Acts and then come up with your own outline, uh, and you'll see this outline uh, does little more than just summarize beginning at Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And that's how most people look at Acts. Okay, questions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can talk either from the human side of why would Theophilus appeal to Luke, or we can talk from the divine side of why would God have chosen a man like Luke. And it's interesting that Luke brings both of those things together in himself. Uh, he's close enough to understand a biblical Jewish Old Testament point of view, but he's not himself a Jew. Uh, he's eyewitness of some of the events, but not of all of them. Uh, he does very careful research. He must have known almost everyone in the ancient world connected with these, this story of Jesus. Uh, and we can see from the result how carefully he did his work. So he's a, a the, well, say the perfect choice. Right? From all the men we know, Luke is the right man to write this book. Okay, any other questions? I know it's time. We've got to finish up here. Okay, well, let's close here. And now the fun will begin next week when you can actually start reading the book. And let's close with the blessing, uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much for letting me be your sub, for not uh, shooting spit wads and things like that. Uh, and I'll give Dr. Cloa a good report.